Hello and welcome to another episode of the R Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be focused on origin stories for the systems of our society. So welcome to season four, by the way. This season is going to be going through basically all of the main concepts and topics that I have covered throughout the history of this podcast over the past few years, covering them from a different angle, a more macro perspective, connecting a lot of the dots, that type of thing. So today's episode will be based off of the first series that I did in the very beginning of this podcast in season one. And that series was on the origins of the systems that we live under, the origins of government, of money, and of education. And that's the focus of season one as a whole, these systems of our society. And that was really what the very first episode of the podcast was about, is why these are the most foundational systems within modern society. And I kind of go over that, what I would call those basic aspects of the civilization that we live under, the society we live in, our culture, all of these things. They all are built upon government, money, and education. And I find those to be the most foundational systems and entities within our modern society. So what I did is I looked at those first, uh, that first series on the origins of these things, and I'm compiling this down to one episode where I go over the origins of these and then how they connect and what some of the themes are between all of them and covering all of this from an angle that is uh, obviously different than what I had a few years ago. It's not that there's any fundamental change in my beliefs or in the information or in the history, but I do look at things a little differently. I have some different perspectives, and I want to make sure I cover these from a different perspective. That way, there is still benefit for you to go back and listen to those original episodes, just like I want there to be a a benefit for someone who has listened to this entire podcast since the beginning. I want them to still get something out of it. So that is the plan for this episode, and we can go ahead and dive right in. So the first thing would be the origins of government. And the main thing I want to focus on are the theories of how governments first began, and then some of the different examples of governments throughout the ages of man. So with government, the first theory that I'll go over will be that it developed from family roles. So within a family, the father was typically the leader in a family. He would make the majority of the decisions, the big decisions. He would have the final say. He was the one that kept the family safe, that type of thing. And the father played this role as the head of the family. Now, as we are looking at these more ancient civilizations and even going back to more tribal groups and before then, kind of the beginning stages of of civilized society, really. When we go back that far, a lot of things focused around the family. And as families grew, the size of that group would grow. And some of them would choose to go off somewhere else. Some of them would not make it and would die. Some of them would do different things. But a lot of times, people would stay with their families. And so you had this group that grew larger and larger. And that's where the idea of a tribe 
uh, somewhat comes from is this idea of an expanding family and people staying and getting married and having kids and they decide to live there and then other people come and join the community and all of these things. But obviously, as you get a larger and larger group, it's no longer one father over one family. It's a whole group of people, probably with many different fathers. And so this role would typically be passed along to the father that was considered the eldest. And that would differ among many different cultures. So this is definitely a generality here. But in general, it would be the elder father that was looked on as being wise and experienced and has proven himself to look out for the best interests of the group and doing well with that. And that person would typically be the overall leader of the overall group. While within his own family, he was still the top dog. He was still leading his own family, but the other fathers were still leading their own families. But just when you look from a more macro perspective, the elder wise man, so to say, was the one that was considered to be in this leadership role over the whole group. And hopefully you can easily see how that expands out to being the origins of government. So that is one theory. It is not the only theory, though. So the next theory would be a theory based around force. And this force can be applied either way, whether to keep or to take. So, for example, you have this idea that people might want to take things from other people's. So you have a group of people, and they see that there's this other group of people over there. That group has food, they have shelter, they have supplies, they have animals, they have all these things, and it would be, in their mind, easier to take these things from that group of people than to get them all themselves. And so through force, they then take those things from that other group, and therefore they have what they need without actually having to attain it themselves through their own labor. And so with this, there is this organization that revolves around the use of force to go and take someone's things. That will be a lot more successful if you have organization, if you have a strong leader, if you have some sort of system, if you figured out how you're going to divide the spoils afterwards, all these things. And so I'm sure you could see how that could be a consideration for the origins of having a government over a large group of people. The same is true on the opposite side of the force spectrum, though. So you also have this aspect of there being people out there that might want to come and take our stuff. Therefore, we as a group should probably get together, have a leader, be organized, have a centralized uh, system in some way set up so that we will better be able to defend ourselves against others because we might have to use force to defend ourselves from the force of others trying to take our stuff. And that should be easy to see how that could lead to the formation of government, a more organized, centralized group that is ruling over or managing a larger population of people. Now, the next theory on the origins of government would be the social contract theory. This is something more focused on cooperative efforts. So once you have people starting to live together in larger groups, they realize, and it becomes very obvious very quickly, that things will work a lot better 
if they work together, if they have some general rules that they abide by, some general respect for those in the community, if possibly there is someone who is playing this management role, this leadership role, or a group of people or a council so that they can make decisions that involve everybody living together. Because once you have a lot of people living together, certain decisions affect more than just one person or one group of people. It might affect everybody. So how do you make those decisions? Well, this is going to be a lot easier if you have some body at the top that can figure this out, some sort of hierarchy. And so this social contract is something that doesn't truly exist. It's not like you actually write up a contract and everybody signs it. But it's this idea that when you decide to live together with this other giant group of people, that you all have these general rules, you have this government, this hierarchy over you, and that is something that you're agreeing to in this act of living together within the society. So this is uh, kind of the idea of a social contract, and that's been spread out to many different examples in many different ways that are not worth getting into, but that is the basics. So the final origin of government that I would cover would be the idea of rights, of natural rights. And so this would really focus on the right to life and the right to property. You could even just simplify this to the light, to the right to life, because life in itself covers you. It covers your personhood. It covers your decisions. And it covers the things that you create, because that's an extension of you. The things that you own, the th things that you have made, the skills that you have, the services that you provide, all of these things are a part of you. You as a unique individual, you as a, a conscious life. And so if that life is something that everyone has a natural right to, that then does extend fairly naturally out to property and decisions and liberties and these types of things. And it should be obvious to say that that right would not be able to be infringed upon by someone else. And you would not be able to infringe on someone else's right to life by exercising your own. So there is some natural boundaries there where you can express your own natural right to life and all the extensions of that up to the point that it affects somebody else's rights, their natural rights. And so th this gets a little complicated when you have a larger group of people that are living together and you're trying to figure out where that boundary is and who has stepped over and who hasn't or what would potentially cause one to say that someone has stepped over that line, well, that's a lot easier if, again, you have a body to decide this or a person to decide this, if you have a government. And that could be the role of this group of people or this hierarchy is to not only make these decisions and hear these cases, but also to truly define what these rights are and protect these rights for the other people. So I guess the natural question that one might have would be, okay, so which one is the actual origin of government? And I would say all of them, because they probably all have been in different cultures and different ways at different time periods. But in addition to that, they probably stack. There are probably multiple reasons why a certain society, a certain population came to the point and evolved to the point of having a government. 
it was probably because there were these natural hierarchies that developed out of the family roles. But in addition to that, they also wanted to protect themselves and protect their group from the force of others. And they might also want to use their force to take over another group or to secure a territory. And so they wanted to organize for those reasons. They also wanted to live together cooperatively and have that work out well. And so you have this social contract aspect. And they also probably would all agree that they have a right to their own life. And they wanted to make sure that that was protected and that we could define what that was and hear any disputes related to these natural rights. And so all of these things are, in my opinion, the origins of government. That's where all of this comes from. Now, to get into some more examples of how this plays out throughout history, I'm not going to go into any great deal, but what I'm going to do is look at this from the perspective of the ages of man, which is a framework that that I developed myself built upon those frameworks of others that are probably much smarter and much more knowledgeable than myself. But I have compiled things together, created this framework. I talk about it in other places in the podcast. But basically, it really breaks down to having these ages of man that go from survival to the age of religion, to the age of empire, to the age of economics, to the age of science. And those are the broad macro ages of man. And so to look at government from this perspective, you can look at the age of survival as an age of the origins of government, all of these things. These are the origins. This is more tribal societies and things of this nature than as uh, as humanity evolves, as society evolves, gets more organized, you have cities and these kinds of things start to develop, you have agriculture, all of this stuff, you move into the age of religion. Now, one of the main governments that exists in the age of religion is theocracy, or some offshoot of that, where you have a religious dictatorship over a group of people. Everybody is managed, controlled, ruled by the dictates of the religious leaders, of the priests or the scribes or whoever it is that is the the mouthpiece for God, so to say. And this was a very common form of government in early societies, uh, roughly in this age of religion. Then as you move out of the age of religion, you move into the age of empire. And this is where these societies start to expand even more. You have more technologies related to warfare and uh, cities as well, and architecture and agriculture and all these things as society evolves further and further. Now, I'm not going to say that any one government is the only one that existed in this certain age. There is so much overlap and so many different examples. Again, I'm looking at this from a macro perspective here. But in the age of empire, this is more of an age of autocracy. This is an age of things like monarchies and dictatorships and things of this nature where you had a very strong centralized government. There was often a religious influence, but it wasn't specifically a government that was an arm of that religion. This government would often be very tied, very connected to, or the specific person, the specific king or ruler or emperor would usually be connected with a religion pretty strongly, but it wasn't that the people were ruled by that religion 
typically, but more by that person or by that hierarchy. Now, again, there's a lot of overlap here. You can look at plenty of emperors that claim to be divine or plenty that claim to be the mouthpiece of their god or of the gods. And through this divine right of kings, so to say, they would have the divine right to rule over the population. And that was an excuse that was used quite often. But overall, the Age of Empire was all about these different autocratic ways of ruling, governing over people. Now, as you shift into the age of economics, that brings you into a more modern age. This is an age of plutocracy, of meritocracy. This is an age that's based on skill and cunning and things of this nature, not an age specifically focused on force like the previous age, the age of empire, but one that is starting to bring in this aspect of skill. When you get into the age of economics, you have a lot more specialization, you have a lot more diplomacy going on, you have a lot of things going on behind the scenes here, and it's not that the monarchies don't exist anymore, it's not that emperors don't exist anymore, it's not that these other forms of government, the autocratic forms or even theocratic forms don't exist, but it's that you have more coming into play here where the most influential people, people making decisions for populations, they are not just the emperors. They are not just the kings. There's a whole bureaucracy that is built out. And now there's all this commerce. There is mercantilism. There is capitalism that comes up. And all of these things have an influence over the people, over the society, over governing this society. And that is something that is really starting to come into play in the age of economics, which brings you probably all the way from the age of empire. You can even look at the tail end of that with the British empire. Uh, that's kind of a crossover empire there going into the age of economics and all the way up into modern times. That would kind of be the age of economics there. And you can see how there's a lot more influence from these other sources. It's not just autocratic where there's one person or one body that makes all the decisions and overall has all the influence. It's that they are beholden in a lot of ways to, let's say, capitalist forces or things of that nature. Just like in the previous age, those emperors were often beholden to the religion and uh, vice versa. You have the age of religion. They were often beholden to the aspects of survival from the previous age where, you know, we are all going to die if we don't sacrifice this one person in this one way. And so everybody gets on board because they don't want to die because it's all about survival. And so all of these things influence the ones that come after. And as we look forward, and possibly we are already here, that's, there's plenty of debate on where we are from a very macro perspective. You can't really narrow it down that much. But if you look into the age of science, that is an age ruled by technocracy. And so this is more this idea of being ruled by experts, and experts are the ones making the decisions. It's not about the politicians. It's about the technicians, the engineers, the scientists, these types of people. They actually know their field. They know what's best. They look at empirical data. They use all of this data and information to make their decisions objectively instead of these former 
ways coming out of the corruptions of the age of economics, where the politicians are beholden to the corporations and there's all this corruption. Well, the idea of the age of science and technocracy is to get away from that and get a lot more objective. And that is either where we are or where we are headed. So I think that covers the the very basics from a macro perspective of the origins of government getting us into the modern age. If you want more on that, go back to episode one, two, I don't know what it is. It's called The Origins of Government. And I go into more detail and give examples of democracy and monarchy and pros and cons and all these different kinds of things. And I think it's very interesting. I actually went back and listened to that, hadn't listened to it in a few years, and I think it holds up extremely well. So if you're interested, do that. And otherwise, stay here and we'll get into the next origin story. And that would be the origins of money. Now, you can go back to the time period of barter as kind of the beginnings, where when you have a bartering society, people are trading goods for goods. And then you have this problem where I want to buy a goat, but what I have is a wheel. And the person with the goat doesn't really want a wheel. They want a bag of salt. Well, that puts me in this quandary where how do I get the goat? I I want the goat, but all I have is this wheel. So I have to find someone with the bag of salt that I can trade that wants a wheel, make sure they want a wheel so I can trade them the wheel for the salt. Then I can take that bag of salt and buy the goat. And this gets extremely complicated when you get into larger markets and larger groups of people, and it really doesn't work very well. It's very inefficient, very ineffective. And so you begin to have something that is more of a commodity money that starts being used. And salt is a good example because at one point that was a form of money that was used because most everybody wants salt. Salt is very usable. And so if I have salt, then pretty much I can trade that salt for something. There's no guarantee that I can trade it for exactly what I want, but I can trade it for many different things because many people want salt. Well, once that becomes commonplace, then even if I don't need salt and I can't think of anything that I want to trade my salt for, if I have something of value and someone else wants it, I'll I'll take their salt for it and exchange the thing for salt because I just know that if I have the salt, I can then trade it for other things that I might want in the future. And so it becomes this form of money. And as you can see, it creates this economy that works a lot more efficiently, a lot more effectively. And that would be that early stage of using money. Now, then you get into the aspect of credit money where, oh, I have this goat that I am giving to somebody, but they don't necessarily have anything to give to me yet, but they will in the future. And so I give them the goat on credit and we might keep tabs of that. And there might be different systems or physical objects that represent this. And so you have this sort of early credit system that also comes into play. Now, as you get into different types of money and how that becomes a thing, then you get into this aspect of what, what does money need to be? What are some of the qualities that need to be there for something to be money? Well, some of these are things like being divisible, where you can divide it into multiple different denominations so that you can have large amounts or small amounts. It needs to be durable so it doesn't break down, it doesn't rot, it doesn't go away in time, but it stays what it is. It holds its essence and its value over time. It needs to have some sort of intrinsic value, 
where there is there is demand for it in the market already. And there's demand just for what that thing is, like salt. People want salt to use the salt for things that you use salt for. Same with metals. They use metals to make things. So there is already a demand for metals, regardless of its status of being used in money. So there is this intrinsic value aspect. And you also want this thing, whatever the money is, to be scarce. Because if it's not scarce and everybody has some, then its value is very low, and that creates a lot of different issues. People can just get more if it's sand, for example. I can just walk out, grab a handful of sand, and bam, I've got money and I can buy stuff. Well, no, that's not really how that works. So there needs to be some aspect of scarcity. Now, when you have money... And when that becomes starts to become commonplace within a society, it creates a few needs. It creates a need within the society for storage. You have to have somewhere to put your money. You don't necessarily want to keep it all in your house. What if you get robbed? You don't want to keep it just on your person. Again, what if you get robbed? You want to be able to store it somewhere. You want some sort of security for it, whether it be at your house or on your person or stored somewhere. You want to make sure that it's secure, that it's safe. And you want to be able to transport it. So if you want to go on a trip, if you're going to the market, if you're doing something, it makes it really hard if your money is a giant boulder, which there are examples of giant stones being money and that it yeah creates some issues. But uh, transportability is something that you would ideally want with your money if you're going to be using it in a marketplace. And with all of this, there were a few places that uh, became the centers of providing these needs. And the three that I'll give examples for would be temples, castles, and regional societies. So temples, you go back to religion, which is a theme in this episode. Uh, with temples, they are these places that already exist, that are already respected. They are looked upon as being places with moral people. They are typically strong and defendable buildings, and it seems like a good logical place to store your goods, store your gold, so to say. Let's say gold is the money we're talking about here. Then storing your gold at the temple, that becomes a very a natural evolution of what you're going to do to solve this problem of needing storage and security, transportability, these kinds of things. Because there's also another temple that's in the next town over. So maybe instead of me carrying my gold from this town to the next, when I travel there to buy something, maybe I put my gold in the temple here and somehow get vouched for that amount of gold, then go to the temple in the next town and pick up that same amount of gold from them and use it at that marketplace. And then I don't have the risk of carrying it with me from one town to the next, because again, you might get robbed or something else might happen. And so there becomes a lot of different ways in which a system like this of having a place to be able to securely store your gold becomes very valuable. Now, you can see how castles would be a similar thing, where you have the lords, you have the early governments, they have fortifications, they have buildings, they have places, they have soldiers, and obviously they can handle all of these things. And within their territory, they have a lot of different locations, they have a lot of control over many different locations, so it's not just in one city, but it's in multiple places, and so you have a lot of those same benefits. Now, the final thing would be 
regional societies. So let's look at something like the Masons or the Knights Templar, a group of this nature where they do have people in many different locations in a region. They do have uh, strengths. They have the ability to secure things, to store things. They have physical locations. They have all of these things. And so uh, when you look into, for example, the history of the Knights Templar, this is something that would be used a lot during the Crusades, where they would store your gold for you before you headed off. And then they would have a location closer to the area where the Crusade was happening. And you could then pick up that value there with some sort of voucher. And so uh, they had this ability to do this. And then they were soldiers and they could protect all of these things that they had. They had strongholds, these types of things. And so again, you get all these same benefits for all these same reasons. And these were used by many different groups of people too. They were used by lords. They were used by merchants, by soldiers, by travelers. Lots of people would need a place to securely store their gold or their money. And this provides a way for them to do that. And in different societies, uh, some had all three of these, where they had regional societies, castles and temples, they had the religion, the government, all of these things uh, would provide these services. In some societies, you would just have one that provided the service, and some only one would win out in the end. And so again, it's kind of like going back to the different forms of government or the origins of government. It's really hard to pinpoint down, oh, it's this one thing. And plenty of people have said, oh, it just started with religions and temples. And some would say, oh, it just started with governments. And some would say, oh, it just started by these secret societies of ancient times. And that no, it wasn't any one of those. But in some societies, it was just one. And in most, it was a combination of many. And you can see why all of these things did evolve into being something of value for so many different people within a society. Now, once you had a location that stored a lot of gold, for example, then that location would issue notes for the goods that were stored there. So if you store your gold in the temple or in the castle or wherever, then they would give you a note that says, oh, you deposited one pound of gold, for example. And so then you would take that note and you could exchange that note in the marketplace instead of the gold itself. So you could put a pound of gold in the storage facility, let's say in the temple, and they would give you a note for a pound of gold, you could exchange that note for a pound of gold for a goat or whatever it is you're buying, then that person that sold you the goat now has a note for a pound of gold. And they can just go to the temple and redeem that note for a pound of gold. And then you never had to deal with actually physically having that gold and all of the issues that might come from that. And so these notes start to be exchanged instead of the goods or the money itself. And so with this, you begin to have a centralized source that begins loaning notes and goods that were stored and earning a profit on that. So they see that they have hundreds or thousands of pounds of gold, for example, in their stores, and no one's really coming to use it because most people are just trading notes. We might only have 10% or so or less that is actually getting withdrawn and being used. And with that, even though 10% might be taken out at any given time, you also have at least that amount that's getting put in because more and more people are bringing their gold to be stored here. So we have all this gold just sitting here. 
maybe there's a way that we can make profit from this. Maybe we can use this to our advantage. And that's when you start loaning out based on the gold that you have. So you do physically have the gold there, but it belongs to somebody else. But still, you can say, hey, worst case scenario, they will come and redeem their gold that I loaned them a note for, and the person that owns the gold will also redeem their gold. Well, still, I have 90% of the total gold that exists is still here in the facility, and so there's not really any risk of me running out of gold to pay out, and that the average over time will be such that I'm never at risk of running out of gold, even if I loan out more than I actually have. And so uh, you can see how uh, this begins to become an issue, and you see the beginnings of a bank and a banking system. Now, around this time, you have governments that start to take control of these types of things. Uh, Originally, oftentimes at least, they started as more of a free market economy with uh, money and trade and all these things. But as governments start to become more and more centralized, they start to grow and have larger and larger bureaucracies and influences, then they begin to impose taxes and regulations and monetary policy, and they provide the legitimization for the money. They also debase the money. So even if you have a coin that is pure gold, and one coin is one ounce of gold, and it's worth one ounce of gold, well, a government or a king or somebody might decide to start shaving off the edges of that uh, that coin. So it's no longer an ounce. It's just a hair less than an ounce. And then you start doing that for your entire population that's paying you taxes, and then give the coins back out, and hey, you just made a whole bunch of money for free. So great, let's do that. And that happened, and many other versions of that happened over and over again. And in many empires, that was the beginning of the fall of the empire, was corrupting the monetary system. But this is something that uh, was an evolution of money. And so we start to phase into credit and representative money that leads to banks and governments using and profiting off of other people's money. So again, if you're not using the gold itself, or if your coin is not an actual gold coin, but it just represents an ounce of gold, for example, or a note that represents a certain amount of precious metals, then you start having these notes that are being used, these promises that are being used, these IOUs, so to say. And as governments start to have more control over this and a banking system of some formality starts to develop, then they start to take advantage of all of these things that they can do now, now that they are living in an economy that's based on this type of money, a credit money or a representative money. And there are many advantages to this. In many ways, they take advantage of this in many ways in which that is not good for the rest of us. But that is what happens. Now, there is a check on this corruption, and that would be specie requirements. So the amount of specie that someone might have, uh, that's just referring to the underlying good. So if you're on a gold standard, then that's the specie would be gold. And so you have these requirements where a representative money is backed by gold, for example, and can always legally be redeemed for gold. Now, if we're saying it can be legally redeemed for gold, that implies that the government has mandated certain policies. And again, governments now have control over all this stuff as we're talking in this time of the history here and the evolution of money. 
And so you have this as a bit of a check, but what happens is that check starts to fade. You start to have things like fractional reserve banking, which you saw the beginnings of, as I talked about earlier, where a storage facility would have all of this gold stored up and they would start loaning out more than they actually have. Well, that's the beginning of this idea of fractional reserve banking, which is more what we live under today at best, unfortunately. And this would create the exponential creation and inflation of a monetary supply. Because let's say a modern bank, for example, they might be able to hold a million dollars in reserve, but loan out $10 million. Or let's say in the post-COVID world in the United States of America, a lot of those requirements just went away and they can loan out however much they want without many reserve requirements whatsoever. And what they are holding in reserve in modern time is fiat money. So it's not even gold that they're holding in reserve. They're holding notes that actually can't be redeemed for gold. So it's all basically a big scam. But it's the scam that we live under, and currently it mostly works. And so that's where we are. Now, with this, you do have examples throughout history of what's known as free banking. And this would be systems that were not government systems. They were not necessarily fiat money and fiat money being money that derives its value by the government saying that it has value. And there were time periods in America and Scotland and different places where you did have free banking. I give some examples of that in the Origins of Money episode I did at the beginning of the podcast, so you can listen to that if you're interested. But one of the overall takes here is that these free banking systems were typically not as free as they are represented to be when you read about them in the books. There were typically plenty of regulations that were involved that had many distortions within the markets, and it was not truly a free banking system, at least the majority of the systems that I could find, and I dug pretty deep to find as many as I could. Now, in addition to this, there were some that were actually more stable than the uh, more formal banking system or government banking systems or the fiat money systems. And so it's not that all of them totally failed and they were all these horrible experiments that never worked out. Some of them actually were pretty decent. But at the same time, don't go to either extreme because there were no utopian examples of, oh, everything worked out perfectly because the incentives lined up in this certain way and it incentivized everybody to do the right thing and cooperate. Nah, that's not really reality. So in general and in theory, free banking would have a lot of checks because you're not able to fall back on the force of the government. You're not able to fall back on the legitimization that the government gives you. You have to fall back on specie. And so you have to have the gold. And if you are a bank that is not associated with any government and a totally free market system, then you're incentivized to have that gold. Because if you don't, you totally go out of business. And the whole point is to not go out of business. That's why you're in business. You want to make money. And so in order to make money and have your business continue, you have to make sure that you have the specie that you need in order to continue business. And there will be times when people want to withdraw more than usual. So you have to make sure you have plenty to cover that. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that in a free banking, free market system that every bank is going to have 100% reserves. No, they probably won't. And at the same time, is everybody going to make the best long-term decisions from a very rational economic perspective? 
Not always. Sometimes they just want to make a bunch of money real quick and skip town. And so these incentives, again, don't create a utopia, even though there are many very positive things about open and free markets, and it is typically represented as being horrible failures in most history books. That's not truly the case. But at the same time, it's not a utopia. So I want to make sure that we don't go to, again, one extreme or the other. But that does bring us into more modern times. And so we can move on. We can move on to the origins of education. That would be this third cornerstone, so to say. And so with education, this begins with the trades. It begins with passing along family tradition. It begins with religion, like so many other things, and basic skills and knowledge that is needed in order to live, in order to operate in a society. These are all needs. These are all things that exist. These are all part of being an organized society. And so with this, this is the uh, again, kind of like government, where you have these different origins of government, whether it be family roles or force, social contract, rights, whatever. It's kind of the same with education. Was it because people had skills and trades they specialized in and they would pass that along to their kids? Well, partially. Was it because they were in a family and their parents would teach them things as they grew up? Well, yes, partially. Was it because the, the people in charge, as well as the parents, as well as the society, wanted to make sure that everyone understood the religion and followed within the morality of their society? Well, yes. It's, it's all of these things, really. And different ones would take priority in different times and different places, but a lot of these different things. Now, if we go way back, the earliest uh, note that I have here is from 3500 BC. And that would be when many people say that writing emerged. And regardless of whether it was in 3500 BC or not, when you have writing and you have this ability to start recording information, to write down words, to basically store ideas, when this becomes a thing, this is a really big deal within the evolution of societies. And so, there are so many different uses, but what you what it really breaks down to is that you need scribes. You need people that can write, that can utilize this tool and this technology in order to record for a broad array of things, but mainly for business, for government, for religion, and for law, and other things of this nature. Again, so many different examples here, but uh, overall, these are very important foundational aspects of society. And these would be things that you need to uh, have written down. These are all things that would verbally be passed along and that people would be taught, people would know, but you want to have that recorded. And mainly for business sake, you want to have uh, ledgers that you can record certain amounts of money on for buying and selling things and for credit and for different things of this nature. A government wants to make sure that they have their laws written down. So they have something that they can go back to and say, hey, this is the law. They can pass it out to everybody. Everybody knows knows what the law is because it is written down. You have no excuse. It's not just this general idea that people are talking about. No, it's an actual thing that's written down and recorded. It's an idea that is stored that people can access. And so with this, this is another origin of education, that you need this skill, and so we need to pass along this skill, so we need to teach people this skill. That's education. And the first 
common subjects as you get into early education systems and early examples in societies. The, the main common subjects that I found links to were religion, literacy, soldiering, craftsmanship, mathematics, and the arts. Now, some of these you would recognize as being common in today's world. Uh, some of these, they do not. They are not very common. Craftsmanship, um, soldiering, religion, they are taught in some situations, but in general, these are no longer the main subjects that are taught within schools or taught to young people. There weren't always formal schools when you go way back in history, but there are examples of more formalized schooling. Some of that was run by the government or the hierarchy in that society. Some was private, so to say, where people could pay for it or not. Some was built off of religion, where you had churches that would have schools, these kinds of things. Many different examples, but these can go all the way back to 1000 BC in China. They go back to the Egyptian empire in its heyday, to Greece, to Rome, even the early Native American societies. Um, you have like the Incas and the Aztecs. There are examples there. And I actually give some examples of these things in the episode I did on the origins of education. So again, if you want more information on this stuff, go back. I've got some really interesting stuff there as well. But all of this was unfortunately, pretty class-based. And class, not as in you sit in class to learn something, but class as in your status in society. Because if you were high, as far as your class is concerned, you were royalty, or you were part of an important family, or you have some sort of influence within your sphere, then you probably receive a much better education or just period, you receive an education, whereas someone at the bottom end of the spectrum would not. And that is pretty common among a lot of these early civilizations and early examples before modern times. And as you get more modern, you kind of have that changed. And in some ways, it's good. In some ways, it's not. But as you move along, most of these societies, even though you have these examples of formal schooling, basic and advanced, and that's usually what it was, there's usually a breakdown of both of those, uh, go back to Plato's Republic and you can read why. But with this, you also had examples of homeschooling. For example, I forget if it was the Incas or the Aztecs, one of the two, uh, you were homeschooled at home, and I believe the phrase was you would learn the sayings of the old or the sayings of the wise or something like that. You can go back and listen to that episode if you want more information. But uh, that was the way that society was set up, is you were homeschooled until you reached a certain age, and then they actually had formal schooling that you went to after that. Uh, homeschooling was going back to the origins of government, even. It was part of this uh, this system of family roles, the hierarchy of how people were organized. You just learned from your parents. That's just the natural evolution of how things go. And so you have those examples. You have free market teachers going back to Greece and Rome and lots of other examples where parents could pay for their kids to take a class or to learn a skill or to learn a trade or whatever. You also have examples like apprenticeships where you learn from a mentor and you learn a trade that way. You have various examples from China to Greece and all over the place of philosophers and philosophy gaining popularity in different ages and different times and places. And they would typically 
learn and teach through discourse, and they would have discussions and debates and all kinds of things. And they would get into things like mathematics and geometry and things, uh, astronomy, things a lot more than what we think of today as philosophy. But uh, there are all of these different examples of education throughout time, and they take a lot of different forms. And many of these were based on religion. Guess what? Religion's coming up again, because in order to follow your religion, and most early societies were built on a religion of one sort or another, but in order to follow that religion, you would need to be able to read the writings of that religion, or at least understand what the priest was telling you about that religion, and they read the writings to you. You need to ideally be able to write, you need to be able to speak well, you needed to understand the teachings and the concepts and things like this. And so there were a lot of different needs that were related to religion that required education. That's how you learn to read and to write and to understand and get concepts and all of these things. And so that was kind of the beginnings of education in earlier societies and coming in through, let's say, the age of survival and religion and empire and shifting into the age of economics. Because as you get into those later ages, let's say the 16th to 18th centuries, state education became very popular and was pretty widespread. And this uh, arguably started in Russia in the 1700s, was at least the main example that's often given, the Prussian model of education. And again, go back to the origins of education episode I did earlier on for more on this, but the very basic overview would be that the Basically, the government wanted to have soldiers that were more obedient and that thought less critically because they wanted them to just do what they're told and do it without thinking or questioning or anything like that. So they developed a system to train their soldiers so that they would follow orders and be very obedient and they would learn skills. They wanted them to be very skilled in certain things, but they would break them apart and teach them a lot on one specific skill, but not about a bunch of other stuff. So they didn't really have any context. They just knew how to do their skill. They did it well and they followed orders without question. And that created such an efficient and useful force of soldiers that that then expanded to their citizenry as well. What if our citizens actually did what they were told and we could train them to not think critically or oppose us in any substantial way, but instead just do what we need them to do. And we can have more control over the economy, over what people know, over what people do, all these things. And uh, that then got exported internationally. Guess what? Uh, that was the place where you could get a PhD. And early on, that was the only place you could get a PhD was from the Prussian education system. Guess who got PhDs? People that were in the more elite classes that were more well-to-do and people that would go back to their own countries and be teachers and start schools and all of these things trained by the Prussian model. And then they would import that Prussian model to their own places. So lots of issues there and lots you can get into giant rabbit hole there. But by the 1900s, most developed nations have state-run education. They're mostly paid for with taxes. They're mostly compulsory. And again, none of these things were completely new, but that was not the norm until, let's say, roughly the 1900s. And so when we look at our modern education system, and that's what we will be getting into in the very near future, 
That is a new experiment. That is not something that has been common or normal for the majority of human societies. So yeah, keep that in consideration. Now, when we shift out of this idea of the origins of education, look back at all of these things, government, money, education, these foundational systems that we live under, there were some themes that really came out and were fairly obvious here. The family unit, you have the hierarchical aspects that turn into government. You have families that live around each other and barter with each other and kind of the beginning of those that economic system and the use of money. You have families that pass on skills and traditions to their children, the beginnings of education. So that would be one theme. Another would be religion. That came up a whole lot. You have theocratic governments that come on. You have just the society, how they operate, what their morality is, their ethics, their laws, their rhetoric and politics, all of this is filtered through religion in early societies. They, the religious institutions would gain and store wealth as well, and you kind of have the origins of banks that partially come from that as well. You've got the education aspect of needing to be educated in order to fulfill your religion and do all of these things. And so uh, religion played a big part. Economics as well. Economics would be a theme that I didn't specifically call out, but you have this aspect of economics within governments, especially as they start to take over economies and impart things like import duties and taxes and tariffs and regulations and all these things. They want control and economics is a great tool for that. Moving into the age of economics, that starts to get mastered and then starts to get completely corrupted. But that would be an example economics with money. Uh, I don't really need to explain that. They go hand in hand. Uh, with education, you had this need for successful businesses, for management, for accounting, for all of these things. You have a need for education in order for your economic system to continue to expand, to be able to come, um, to be able to accommodate the complexities of a more broad economic system. And so there's the education piece. And with all of this, you have these different themes. And the, the big theme overall becomes this play between liberty and control. You have free markets and you have centralized systems. And these are two different things. They are opposites. They kind of coexist. There are examples of both in just about every age and just about every sector. But overall, one is taking away from the other. It's a zero-sum game. And so with this, you have these examples with government, with money, with education. They all have examples of more free market, liberty-based systems that are typically pretty successful, but also do have plenty of negatives as well. And then you have examples of centralized governments and centralized systems you could say the banking system or an institutionalized religion that is over a whole society or a government, a modern state, something like that. And these centralized systems, they also have their pros and they also have lots of cons. And this is something that is a battle that goes on throughout history and it is still being fought and it's a balance. And some would say that it should be complete liberty, and some would say it should be complete control. Most would say it's somewhere in between, and I am not here to tell you one way or another. I am just here to talk about it and give you different ideas and perspectives. So 
I think that's where I'm going to leave off here that uh, basically covers a lot of the content and adds some stuff and gives some different perspectives to the first series that I did way back in season one. The episodes were Origins of Government, Origins of Money, Origins of Education, uh, something related to themes. And I did do an example of ancient Israel as an example of governance that was uh, praised more than government. So with ancient Israel, they did not have a formal government. It's one of these examples of liberty and free market systems where they had organization, they had governance, they did have people fulfilling different roles, but there was no centralized government. There was no king. There was no national military, nothing like this. It was a decentralized system of governance without a centralized government. So it's a really cool, unique example back in history that was relevant to all of these things, religion and um, education, as well as obviously government. So if you want more on that, go back to those episodes. I talk more about all of those things. This should bring us up to the time of modern history. And in the next episode, I will get into those things. And you should have more wonderful information about things related to government, money, and education, but getting into more modern history, the history of our current modern systems. It's not the history and the origin of money as a whole. It's the origin of our modern banking system and current fiat monies that are being used right now. That's what we'll shift into in the next episode. So thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, whatever, feel free to reach out to me, rfoundations at protonmail.com or on Twitter at foundationspc. There's also the website with various forms of information on there as well, some resources, some outlines. I don't update it all that often, so it's not necessarily up to date, but it's not crazy out of date. It's at least been updated within the last year, so feel free to check out the website as well. Links for all of these things will be in the show notes. If you're interested in supporting the show, then you may do so via cryptocurrency. I have some addresses listed in the show notes, as well as a Patreon page and Subscribestar page. Subscribestar for those who are not very fond of the Patreon Corporation, which there are plenty of those. And so thank you to the supporters that are on Subscribestar and Patreon. I really appreciate that. And if you are willing and interested to do so, then please do get on there and check it out. There are various perks for different support levels, and you can review all of that there. So overall, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for all of your support, whether it be ratings or reviews or telling a friend or giving me feedback or monetarily supporting the show, all of these different things. Just being a listener is something that is very valuable. So thank you very much for all of your support of all kinds. I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye-bye.